All right. Hey, church. Good morning. Glad you're here. Uh, hopefully, y'all aren't asleep like you were with John. Um, uh, so this morning, we're in the seventh week of this series called 10 Words to Live By. Um, these are the 10 commandments we're looking at, also known throughout generations as the Decalogue, uh, the 10 words. Um, let me just do a quick review of these first five, and then we'll introduce this sixth one this morning. Uh, so first, we talked about undivided allegiance. Word number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Number two, word number two, undiminished worship. You shall have no carved or graven images or make no carved or graven images of me and bow down to or serve them or worship them. Uh, untarnished name. Uh, don't take the name of the Lord, your God, in vain. That was number three. Number four, unhindered rest. Uh, remember the Sabbath day. So we talked a couple weeks ago about uh, Sabbath rest, true biblical rest that's found in Christ. And then last week, Jake brought us into the fifth word, honor elders, where it talks about honoring our father and our mother or, or authority figures in our life. Now, we're in word number six this morning, which is honor life, honor life. And uh, we'll be in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13 here in just a couple minutes. So if you've got your Bible, feel free to start turning there. Uh, I, I am thankful for what we do around here, which is called expository preaching, which means we preach through the text, preach through the Bible. So we let the Bible kind of tell us what to preach about because uh, if we weren't doing that, this is a subject that I probably would not uh, just willingly decide to preach on on a Sunday morning. The sixth word is, as you know it, uh, you shall not murder. And we'll talk about that here in a moment. But let me, let me quote from Jen Wilkin from the book, Ten Words to Live By, which we're reading together as a church. Uh, she says this about the ten words. The last six commandments will press us to evaluate how we respond to the image of God as represented in our fellow man. And so these 10 words are divided up. We've talked about this over the weeks. The first four words have to do with honoring God, our, our vertical relationship with God. And then these last six words, five through 10, have to do with honoring man who is made in the image of, of God. And so I don't know if you, you recognize this the longer you live, but I feel like for me, it seems like the longer I live, the more angry, the more hateful, the more violent our nation, our culture, our world becomes. Y'all feel that in our nation? Um, get ready for 2024. Should be a fun one, right? Um, we look at, uh, if you look at it, one of the things I looked at this week, so this, this word is going to be the, the sixth word, you shall not murder. And so I just, one of the things I just began looking at was statistics in our, in our nation uh, because it seems like it, it becomes more violent and there's more death and murder all the time. Um, surprisingly, the first half of this year, uh, the, the murder rates are down 11% across our nation, um, even though it seems like, you know, there's more and more mass shootings and we're, we're ready to meet or exceed this year, on track to meet or exceed um, highs in our, in our nation's history when it comes to mass shootings. And we're just so exposed to so much violence and so much um, killing, whether it's real life or whether it's, it's, it's fictional or dramatized. Maybe it's the movies we watch, the, the, the games we play. Uh, we get kind of desensitized to, to violence. And, and maybe it's because it's so lumped into the entertainment that we consume, uh, it just doesn't always feel real or tangible unless we've been personally touched by, by it. And so this sixth word is, is simple and yet it's complex. You shall not 
murder. It's simple because it's easy to understand. It's easy to know what it means. Uh, it, it may be so simple that, you know, it, it's so straightforward. It may even be to us like a throwaway because we would say, well, you know what? I've not done that. I'm not planning on doing that. That's not in my plans. Uh, so, you know, check the box. We can move right along. You shall not murder. Okay, good. It, it's simple because of that. It's straightforward, but at the same time, it's complex because it goes deeper than just us being a non-murderer, right? Like all of the, the, the commandments that we've been looking at, it calls us to an expansive obedience. It calls us to deeper obedience. And so what does this sixth word call us to? That's what we're going to consider this morning. So I'd invite you to grab your Bibles and stand with me. We're going to read from Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20, we're going to read the first 13 verses. This is the word of the Lord, God's word. It is truth. It is life. It is God's revelation of himself to us. And so we read this together. It says in Exodus chapter 20, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. In verse 13, you shall not murder. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. And so, Father, this morning we do come before you. Lord, it's been a joy just to sing and to worship you and to lift you high this morning. Lord, I pray that as we open your word, as we look into this sixth word uh, in Exodus, God, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to whatever it is that you want to say to us. God, this may be one of those uh, words that feels like it doesn't apply to us, and yet there's so much in here that you're calling us to this morning, and not just away from, but things you were calling us to. And so, God, I pray that you would help us to have uh, eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand and obey whatever it is that you want to say to us. And so, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that we hold in our hands, that we can set our eyes upon, that we can place within our hearts and meditate on and devote ourselves to. So, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this morning. Would you meet with us and would you speak to us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you all have a seat? Thank you for standing with me. So Exodus chapter 20, you shall not murder. So let me start with this question. What is murder? What is murder? And this seems like a pretty simple, straightforward question, uh, but it's worth asking and answering this morning. 
here's how I would define murder. Murder is intentional, unlawful killing. Intentional, unlawful killing. It's what we might call homicide. It, and it is different from, from killing. It's, it, it, there's, there's the different Hebrew words that are used in the scripture um, that, that mean to, to kill or to, to put to death. In, in Exodus chapter 20, I think this is the best translation, is that you shall not murder. And most English translations of the Bible use this translation. Uh, there is one longstanding translation of the Bible that uses a different word. It's the King James translation that says, thou shalt not kill. So over the years and the generations, uh, the use of the word kill, thou shalt not kill, has led to some, I don't know, misunderstanding or maybe even misinterpreting the verse um, because that would seem to eliminate any, any means of, of killing. And the scriptures do speak to, um, does speak to killing that is permissible or there's allowance for. Um, but if, if the command is don't kill, and here we have a God who throughout the Old Testament and throughout Israel's history, you see a lot of killing and even God um, killing cities, people in cities, and it, then this would all call into, care, into question God's character, that he would violate his own, his own command. And, and so in the scriptures, when you look through the Old Testament, the New, New Testament, you'll see that there is killing that is sanctioned uh, by gov governing authorities. And we don't have a lot of time to dig into this, but we could talk about uh, war, uh, capital punishment. We could talk about law enforcement. These are Romans 13 is a is a good place in the New Testament to look. That the the government bears the sword uh, in, in the place of the Lord. And so it, there is killing that is uh, sanctioned by governing authorities. And there is in the Scripture allowances made for unintentional killing, what we would call manslaughter uh, or self-defense. Right, So in the Old Testament, we see the value of a life, and God makes this so uh, apparent that he values life um, and has to deal with even unintentional uh, killing. And so in the Old Testament, God made, made provision for this. If someone accidentally, unintentionally killed someone, God had set up what he called cities of refuge that these folks could, could flee to and find refuge in these cities of refuge. Uh, so... The first murder, I want to take a look at this in the scriptures. If you look with me, uh, Genesis chapter 4, we find the first uh, murder that takes place in the scripture. And so I think as we kind of define and talk about what is murder, uh, we want to see the first case of that in Genesis 4. Y'all know who uh, committed the first murder? It was Cain, Cain and Abel. Uh, it, brothers, it should be no surprise, or is anybody surprised that the first murder in history occurred between the first siblings? Anybody surprised by that? Um, every, every sibling group has followed suit ever since, right? So Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve have their first children, Cain and then Abel. And we read of this story here where both Cain and Abel bring an offering before the Lord. The Lord is pleased with one. He accepts one and, and, and not the other. And here's what it says in Genesis 4, verses 3 through 8. In the course of time, Cain brought brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. So Cain brings, uh, you know, he's a worker of the ground. He brings some fruit and vegetables, some work of the fruit of the ground. As an offering, Cain brings the firstborn of his flock. It's the best of his, his flock. 
And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Let me pause there for a second. Later on in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, we, we, we get a little, not very much, but a glimpse of understanding here. That, and and the, the Bible doesn't speak to this here in Genesis, but apparently God had, had given some kind of instruction about how to bring an offering that was pleasing to him. And so Abel was obedient, he brought him a type of offering that pleased or was accepted by the Lord, Cain just brought what he had, right? And so here is the response. It says, so Cain was very angry and his face fell. So let me ask you a question here before we move on. Who was, who was Cain angry with in, in this moment? Do you think he was he's angry with Abel? Because Abel kind of like outperformed him. He did something better. He showed him up, right? I would, and I haven't thought about this until walking through this this week, I would argue that it wasn't Abel that he was angry with. It was God. Like, God, why don't you accept what I've, I've brought to you? And so God notices this in the next verse, verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, he asked him a question. Here's one thing you need to know about God is when he asks a question, it's not because he has, he's not in the know. Like, I'm trying to figure out... Cain, why are you angry? Like, God already knows the answer. He's trying to draw out what's on the inside of, of Cain. And so the Lord says, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, if you bring the kind of offering that is acceptable and pleasing to me, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you but you must rule over, the, over it. Here's what I love in this case. Cain has brought an offering that's not pleasing to the Lord, but the Lord doesn't like smack him upside the head and say, you idiot, like you're out of here. No, he, he asks him a question. He says, why are you angry? He says, if you would just obey and be faithful, like won't you be accepted? So even in this moment, it's like he's giving Cain an opportunity to repent. He's giving He's showing mercy and grace to Cain. He even warns him. He says, if you bring what's pleasing, you'll be accepted. But if you don't, if, you don't, if you're not obedient, hey, be careful because sin is crouching at the door. It's kind of like this picture that we see later on in 1 Peter 5 when Paul says, or Peter says, your enemy is like a roaring lion. He's seeking whom he may devour. And so God says to Cain, be careful because Outside your door is sin. It's, it wants to take you out. It, it is contrary to you. And so he's giving the space for Cain to uh, repent. Verse number eight. Uh, sorry. Yeah, verse number eight. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And so this is the first instance that we have of, of murder in the scripture, this intentional uh, unlawful killing. What, what we see is that God gave Cain this opportunity to repent and to bring an offering that was pleasing, and yet he was angry and he, he, he didn't rule over the sin. He allowed the sin to rule over him, which led to this murder. So we see the anger led to murder. I, I, let me just briefly say this. Not all anger is, is sin. The Bible tells us we can be angry and sin not. Uh, there is such a thing as righteous anger, but uh, I would say for most of us, most of our anger is not righteous. It doesn't have to do with God's holiness and people offending his holiness. It has to do with people offending us or frustrating or irritating us. 
But in this instance, here's what we see is this, this anger was against God. Jen Wilkin in the book, she says this. I think this is a, an important quote. Cain's problem was not mere anger, but anger nursed, anger indulged, and anger gratified. So he got angry, but man, he just kind of coddled it. He kind of allowed it to fester. He indulged in it, and then he ultimately gratified it through killing. So what is murder? Here's, here's a second question that I want to answer this morning. Why is murder, why is it sin? Why is murder sin, or why is, is murder prohibited in the scriptures? Well, broadly, and I know you're going to understand this, broadly, anything that opposes what God has commanded is considered sin. But more specifically, why, why murder? Well, here's one reason, is because it opposes God's first mandate to man. So you all remember Genesis chapter 1, it says, you know, in the beginning, heavens and the earth, God created the heavens and the earth. We see through those first days, six days of creation, God creates everything that is in the earth, that's in the sea. He comes to day number six, he creates man, and then he gives, he, he creates man and woman in his own image, and he gives them a mandate. Anybody remember what the mandate is? I heard it. Let's read it. Genesis chapter 1, verses 27, 28. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female. Distinctly, he created them. Verse 28. And God blessed them. And God said to them, here's the mandate, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Uh, so let's translate this into modern terms. You all know what it means to be fruitful and multiply? He puts a man and a woman together for the first time, and he says, y'all, have fun. <laughs> Go have babies, right? <laughs> fill the earth. Replenish, multiply, fill the earth. What is God saying? God is saying, I've given you life. I've made you in my image. Now you are to produce life. You are to multiply and fill the earth. Y'all didn't catch that translation. I think it's in the message translation, if y'all you, if read that one. Here, the first mandate, be fruitful and multiply. I am the life giver. I've given you life. Now I'm calling you to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. In other words, Adam and Eve at this point, there's no sin that has tainted them. There's no brokenness in this world. They are, they are pure worshipers of God. And God says, I want you to reproduce and I want you to, to fill the earth with worshipers of the one true God. Y'all, this is the very first mandate. This mandate really hasn't changed through all the generations all the generations, God still calls us to produce worshipers of God and fill this planet with his people. That is our call. But, but this is the first mandate. And then if you fast forward in, in the scriptures, a couple of chapters and, you know, years ahead in Genesis chapter 6, it says that God looks upon the earth, he looks upon the hearts of men, and he's, he's mortified because sin and wickedness and, and murder and evil is running rampant among this human race that God has created. And God even comes to this place where he says, man, I, I repent, I re regret that I've made man because of all the violence I see. And so God is getting ready to wipe out the earth, and it says that there's one man who finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. You know who it is? It's Noah. And so God gives favor to Noah and his family. He saves them through an ark. This is this picture of, of Christ, the salvation that God provides. And, 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 and he puts Noah and his family in there and the animals. And 
Uh, and so he, he saves them, and he restarts in Genesis chapter 9 with, with Noah and his family. They come off, uh, the waters descend, um, the, Noah and his family come off of the ark, and God gives Noah and his family a mandate. You know what that mandate is? It's the exact same mandate, be fruitful and multiply. But at the same time, God uh, gives another kind of mandate in the midst of this. Because when God created Adam and Eve, he said, be fruitful and multiply. But now God has seen the, the, the tendency towards wickedness and sinfulness and, and this willingness to take another's life. And so God institutes what we would call, what we would know today as capital punishment. All right, Genesis chapter 9. I want to just read a couple of verses. You could read the first seven verses here. We're just going to read verses 6 and 7. God says this to Noah. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. God has already, he already made that mandate earlier in the passage. He kind of reiterates it at the end. But in the midst of, of this, he gives the same mandate be fruitful, multiply. But in the midst of that, he, he institutes this idea of a life for a life. Why? It's because he says, because God made man in his own image. What God is saying is, listen, it's not your role to, to, to give or to take life. It is my role alone. I give life and you are not the one who is to take it because I've made man in my own image. And so God has made this mandate, and so yes, murder is to take the life of a fruitful, multiplying image bearer of God. Yes, but it's more than that. There's a deeper obedience that God is calling us to. There is a, a sin underneath the sin, which is almost always the case in our lives, and we saw it in, in Cain, what was the sin underneath the sin of murder? It was anger. It was, it was hatred. It was malice. It was contempt. And Jesus calls us to, he, he calls out this underlying sin, this underlying seed that leads to murder. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus does this throughout his, his ministry and then throughout the, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, here is what, what Jesus says. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, so here, here's what, when Jesus says this, here's, here's what he's doing. He's not discounting or he's not writing off the previous command. No, he's expanding on it. He's broadening the scope of this. He's saying there's a deeper obedience that I'm looking for. I'm not looking for you to just be a non-murderer. There's, there's something I'm calling out and speaking to here. Verse number 22, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. In, in the book, Ten Words to Live by Jen Wilkin, I, I appreciate how she, she kind of points out this progression that Jesus lays out for us. He says it starts with anger, it progresses to, an, to insult, and then it ends in this, this cursing, saying, you fool. So to be angry 
you know, we, we understand this. We, we all have anger bubble up within us. So it starts by saying, I'm angry with you, and it leads to insult, which the, the word here is this word raka, which means empty one, worthless. It just it means you, you have no brain. I, don't, I question your, your character. So it moves from anger to this insult, and then it moves into this last piece where it says, you fool, which would be the equivalent of, of curse words. Like this would be to bleep out what is being said here. Let me say, let me give you a modern day equivalent. It would be as if saying, God damn you. Which when you think about that literally means, may God send your soul to hell. It means I don't just question your character. It means I question your worth as a person. Y'all see that? that this, this is the progression. This is what leads to murder. It's to say, I don't even value you as a person. I don't even see your worth as a person. And so here's how I would say it. Ultimately, the sin of murder or the sin of hatred, whether that's hatred, murder or hatred of, of another or even of, of self, the sin of murder or hatred is to see an image bearer as worthless. The sin of murder or hatred is to see an image bearer as worthless. It's to devalue their very life. It is to devalue what God values. It is to hate what God loves. So let me ask you a hard question. Have you ever looked at another human being and thought, man, you're worthless? I'm tired of dealing with you. This is what we're talking about. Have you ever felt maybe about yourself? I'm worthless. This is what we're talking about. This is the depth of what he is getting at here. Anger, insult, to to curse, you fool, you're worthless. This is what we're talking about. John Owens, again, this is, this is a more expansive obedience than just not, just the outward obedience. There's an inward attitude that we're talking about. John Owen, an old Puritan British preacher, theologian, he said this, the sixth commandment not only prohibits the outward act of murder, but also the inward attitudes of anger, hatred, and malice. The root of murder is in the heart. So this is what we're talking about. Why is, why is murder sin? Why is it prohibited? It, it, goes deeper than just the, it goes deeper than just the outward, the outward act of, of taking a life. It has to do with the inward attitudes of our heart. Here's a third question that I want to get to this morning. What does this, this word call us to? Okay, so it's prohibiting something. It's calling us away from taking a life. It's calling us away from hatred and anger and malice and contempt for people. But it's also calling us to something. It's calling us toward something else. So what does this sixth word call us to? Well, let me start with the great commandment. And I don't have that on the screens for us this morning, but Matthew 22, you, you know it. You've probably heard it where this, this lawyer comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, out of the 613 laws and the old covenant, which one is the most important? And he's trying to trick Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, here's what it is. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love the Lord your God. And here's a second one that's just like it. Love your neighbor how? as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
And so what this, this sixth word calls us to, it calls us away from anger, and it calls us away from hatred, it calls us away from taking life, it calls us to love our neighbor as ourself. I want to read you this, this quote I came across. It was either yesterday or the day before. It's from the Gospel Coalition, and uh, apparently, I need, to, I need to read up on this more. I'm not very learned on this, but apparently in Canada, there's some stuff going on with legalizing euthanasia. Right, and so uh, the Gospel Coalition put out this this article. It's it's really a, it's a catechism. A catechism is just a series of questions and and answers uh, to biblically try to deal with the the idea or the subject of death and dying. What does the scriptures call us to? What does the scripture say about our attitudes and our actions when it comes to death and dying? Dealing with euthanasia, taking life, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I thought that, saw this really. Uh, I, I thought good word that I wanted to share with you. I think this was question uh, 57 on this list of, of questions. It comes from a doctor, Ewan uh, Gallagher and Pastor Kyle Hackman, um, who, who wrote this. Uh, so it's coming from a medical doctor, scientist. He's an elder in a church. Uh, I thought this was a really good word. Here's the question. What does love require of us in our attitude toward the life of our neighbor? What does love require of us in our attitude towards the life of our, our neighbor? Here's the answer. To love our neighbor as ourselves requires that, mindful of their inherent and unconditional value, we always treasure the existence or life of our neighbor and show them in word and deed how much they matter. To act in a manner that undermines forgets or denies the value of their life is to fail to love them. I'm going to read that one more time. To, to love our neighbor as ourselves requires that mindful, like we in our minds we know that they're, they're inherently and unconditionally valuable to God. And because of that, we always treasure the existence or life of our neighbor, not just in word, but he says we show them in word and deed how much they matter. To act in a manner that undermines or forgets or denies the value of their life is to fail to love them. I'm just telling you, when I read through this in the first, uh, the first service, uh, I got convicted as I read that. And uh, it's kind of cool to get convicted by your own preaching, you know what I'm saying? But I read that and I thought, goodness gracious, I don't, I don't murder people, I don't feel like I hate people. But do I sometimes act in a way that undermines or forgets or denies the value of their life? Absolutely, I do. And so I'm not loving my neighbor as God has called me to. Here's, here's the big idea really for this morning. We're not just called to refrain from taking life, but to rejoice in giving life. We're not just called to refrain from taking life. He calls us away from taking life. But this is also a call to rejoice in, in, in giving life. In other words, we don't take life. We, we give life. And I mean that in, in every sense of, of the word. We, we, in a physical sense, absolutely. We, we preserve, we protect, we promote life. And we could spend a lot of, of time here um, but this means every, every human being made in the image of God is valuable. That means from the unborn to the elderly. That includes the poor and the powerless. That includes those who are mentally or physically challenged. That includes the refugee. 
Every person made in the image of, of God is valuable, and God calls us to live as life givers. He calls us to live as life givers. John Calvin, again, an old reformer, he says, he says it this way about the sixth commandment. The sixth commandment teaches us not only to refrain from taking another person's life, but also to actively care for the well-being of our neighbors. It calls us to love and protect one another. It calls us to love and protect one another, whether they believe what we believe or they don't believe what we believe whether they live the way that we think they ought to or the Bible calls them to or not, to love our neighbor, to love and protect, to be life-giving. You all recognize that we can disagree with somebody, even deeply, and still be life-giving to them? It is possible to disagree, even strongly, biblically disagree, and yet be a life-giving person and to speak life-giving words, and to show life-giving love to people. And the church has not historically been awfully good at this. It's been good at declaring what we believe and what we don't agree with, but not doing so in a life-giving way. It's been in a way that tears down and destroys, and can I say this? In many ways, takes life away from people. That's not what God calls us to. He calls us to be life-giving. This sixth word is a call to ultimately follow in the footsteps of our Savior, the true life-giver. 1 Corinthians 15, 45, it makes this statement about the first Adam. It says, thus it is written, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam, this is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So God breathed life into Adam, and he became a living soul. But then the last Adam, the second Adam, Jesus came along, and he came along in order to give life, to breathe life, new life, spiritual life into people. And so I want us to consider Christ for, for just a moment this morning, this life giver. Christ who came to give us life by laying down his own. Do you all remember the scene, if you know the story, when Judas betrayed Jesus and so the guards came, they took Jesus and uh, they brought him, uh, eventually he ends up before the Roman officials and they're trying to decide if they should release Jesus or this other man. His name was what? Barabbas. And Barabbas was a prisoner because he had committed a crime. What was that crime? It was murder. And the crowd calls out to release Barabbas, set him free, set the murderer, let him go free. And so they set the murderer free and they... They held captive the innocent, and that innocent one would go on to be murdered. And I, and I just want you to, to think about this for a second. That Jesus, the, the second person of the Godhead who made this command, made this prohibition to not take life, to not murder, Jesus himself allowed this violation of the sixth commandment to be the very thing that would end up bringing us life. Like, think about that for a second. The God of the universe, Jesus, allowed 
this violation of the sixth commandment to take place so that we could find life, so that we could go free. The innocent one who is perfectly without sin took all of our sin upon himself and he took the judgment, he took the wrath that we deserve because of our sin against God. He bore those upon himself. He died upon the cross for us. He died so that we could go free. He died so that we could live. He is the true life giver, y'all. He gave his life so that we might live. And now he gives us the opportunity, the privilege to be life givers. That we don't take life, no, we give life. We give life to, to others. So let me spend just a couple minutes just to give us some practical thoughts on that. How do we live in light of this? How do we live as life-giving people? It's not just, hey, hey, we're a church. This, this would be a great declaration. Hey, we're a church of non-murderers. Yeah, like, great. What a great church you are. Oh, that's, that falls so woefully short of what God calls us to. He calls us to be life givers. So how do we be life givers? Here's, here's three thoughts. First, we must have life. We must have full life ourselves. We can't give what we don't possess. John 10, verse 10, Jesus said this. He said, the thief, our enemy, the devil, he's come to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus says, I have come that you might have life. He's talking about eternal life, life forever with God, and not just eternal life when we breathe our last breath, but abundant life, full, rich, overflowing life. I have come to provide you with eternal life and true, full life here and now. He is the life giver, and we must first receive life from the giver of life, if we're ever going to be able to be life-giving in the way that we live, in the way that we speak. And the way that you receive eternal life is by putting your trust, your full faith in Jesus Christ, his work on the cross for you. Not, your, not trusting yourself, not trusting your own works, your good deeds, your religiosity. No, 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 no. It's putting your faith in Jesus and him alone. So let me ask you, have you put your faith in Jesus have you received life from him? But not only that, are you living and experiencing full life? See, our, our, our mission statement as a church is, man, we want to lead people to full life in Christ, community, and mission. Christ, we want you to have this growing, deepening, richer and richer life in Christ, this relationship with him that grows over the course of your life. We want you to be rooted in Christ. We believe full life is rooted in him. Christ community, which means immersing yourself amongst the people of God, people who will breathe life into you, who will encourage you, will challenge you, who will help you in your walk. Christ community, mission. Mission is living for what matters most, for eternal things. Listen, y'all, there's so many things that clamor and pull at us that promise life and excitement and happiness, and they all fall short. They all ring hollow. Only Christ and living for what matters most will fill us, will give us full life, eternal things, his glory, his kingdom. So are you living in fullness of life? You can't give out of emptiness. And our hope, our desire is that you would have life in Christ and that you'd be growing in that. And if you're not, 
man, we want to help you in that. We want to help you to immerse yourself in Christ's community and mission. First thing we can do if we're going to be life givers, we've got to first have full life ourselves. But here's a second really, really practical thing. We can speak life. We can speak life. We could spend so much time here because the word of God spends so much time here about what it looks like to, to speak words of, of life. Um, I want to do something a little different for just a, a minute or two here. I want to read through some Proverbs. If you've been in the Bible reading plan with us, we're in the book of Proverbs, which is so good and so rich. But what I've done this week, I knew we were going to talk about this subject matter today. And so like as I'm reading through Proverbs this week, I'm marking down verses where the, the, the writer, where God is, is saying over and over about how we can speak life, how we can impart life to others. So let me take you on a, a quick tour of Proverbs, uh, just from the last week of reading. Proverbs 10, verses 11 and 21. Verse 11 says, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Just think about the way you talk through the week, would anybody describe your mouth as a fountain of life? That the words you speak breathe life and hope into people? Verse 21, the lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of sense. So the words you say, the lips of the righteous, it feeds people, it feeds life into others. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 12, verse 18. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. Think about, think about that terminology. Sometimes the words we use, man, they like, it's like stabbing somebody with a, a sword. It's like taking life. It's like cutting down. It's, it's wounding. It says, but the tongue of the wise brings what? Healing. It brings healing in life. Verse 25, it says, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word does what? Makes him glad. A good word, words of life. Proverbs 15, 4 and verse 31. Verse 4 says, a gentle tongue is a tree of life. Would anybody describe your, your tongue as gentle or is it harsh? That's what he's talking about. Verse 31, the ear, the ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. You know, when somebody says something hard to you that it's for your good, that is life-giving. Some of us hate when somebody confronts us with our own stupidity or sin, and yet what the scriptures say is when somebody will speak life-giving reproof to you, man, you would be wise to listen and receive that. It will breathe life into you. And then Proverbs 18, 21 says this, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Speaking words of life, the words we, you know this, the words we use can tear down, they can destroy, or they can build up, they can give life, they can breathe life into others. And so I want to encourage you to think about 
life-giving words and how you speak this week. Uh, I want to reference a resource, a sermon series from two years ago. Uh, it's a quick three-week series we did in like May, June 2021. It's called Words of Life, and it was all about speaking words that, that build up. Uh, I've got a link to that in our digital bulletin sermon notes if that's something you feel like you need to dig into uh, more, especially week number two. We talk about words of promise, words of pleasure, words of prayer. I'd also include what the, the writer here in Proverbs says, words of instruction or words of rebuke. Those things breathe life into us. So we can speak life. Here's a third and final thought about how we can be life-giving people is we can lead others to the life giver. We can lead others to the life giver. So I hope by your words, by your life, you point other to God, others to God's grace, but we also must strive to take people directly to him. Proverbs 11, I love this verse. Verse number 30, it says, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and whoever captures souls is wise. You know what that means? It says that in the King James, it says, Whoever wins souls is wise. You know what that means? It means when I introduce somebody to Jesus and they find life in Christ. When I win a soul, when I capture a soul, man, God says, you're wise. The fruit of the righteous, the fruit of our lives is a tree of life. How incredible would it be for us to bring a soul to Christ, to life in Christ? And so in, its, in the truest sense, we can be the polar opposite of a murderer, one who takes life away, and we can bring someone to Christ. We can bring someone to full life in Christ. So I want to kind of wrap up this morning by saying this. I love this church. I love coming into this place every single uh, week. I look forward to worshiping in this place. Um, I don't know what your week has looked like. I don't know if you've had a difficult week. I don't know if you've struggled. Uh, I don't know if it's, it's been a good week for you. Uh, I hope you look forward to coming into this place. You, you know why I look forward to coming into this place when I really think about it? It's because this is a life-giving place for me. Like when I step into this place alongside y'all and we worship, we lift the Lord's name together, it breathes life into me. Uh, this has been a heavy week for me. It's been a funeral week. It's been all about death, and it's been hard. One of our own lost uh, his spouse, and a couple of kids lost their mother. And so that's been my week. And here, uh, here we're talking about death again, and man, to even come into this place, though, alongside God's people and to worship the Lord of life the life giver, the one who laid down his life so that I could, so that you could, so that we could experience life to the full. And this is a joy and a, a privilege and a blessing. We're not just called to refrain from taking life. We're called to rejoice in giving life. In a gospel culture, like I believe we have here, a gospel culture is a life-giving culture. Gospel culture is a life-giving culture. And I just want to say thank you for everything that you do to make this a life-giving culture. If you've been in churches, any churches before, you know that not every church is a life-giving church. A lot of churches, uh, to, be, to be honest, suck the life out of you. Because it's about what you do or can do or ought to do, and it's not about what 
God has done, what Christ has done for you and resting in him. And so I'm thankful for all that you do to, to make this a life-giving place. And, and like everything else in the scriptures, uh, really there's, there's almost nothing in the scriptures that is directed towards an indi- individual. It's all to a community. We're called to live in community. We're called to live as God's life-giving people. And so I hope you'll be a life-giver this week in how you speak how you treat people and how you look upon people. Um, But here's the incredible thing about this. We get to be a life-giving community all together. And this is when it's it's the most beautiful and the most powerful. And so if you've never received this life that we're talking about today, you've never put your faith in Jesus, you've been trusting in your own way, you've been doing your own thing, and you've, you've never humbled yourself before this God who has given and provided you life, man, can I call you to that today? Can I invite you to talk with someone, whether it's someone you know, or maybe it's me, or maybe it's somebody in our prayer corner. Um, I want you to experience life. And in turn, let's be life givers. Amen. And Lord, thank you for this incredible word. Thank you that even when we were sinners, even when we were dead in our trespasses, in sins, you came and provided life for us through the Lord Jesus. That we don't have to try to figure out purpose and meaning. God, we have it in Christ. We don't have to find occupation or hobbies or people or things to to bring ultimate joy and life. God, none of those things work. Only you bring life. And so, God, I pray that you would help us to first receive life from you. Lord, maybe there's someone in here this morning that's never put their faith in you. God, I pray that today you would draw them to yourself. I pray that they couldn't resist your grace. Lord, every single one of us, help us to rest and rejoice in the grace that we have in Christ, the life that you have provided for us. God, help us to, in turn, follow in your footsteps. Help us to live as life givers. God, even this week, help us to speak life. Lord, help us to capture souls. We would point them to the life giver. Lord, we love you. Thank you for all that you've done for us and provided for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.